and welcome to Word Up, a series of podcasts hosted by Oxford University Press with Helen Prince and guests. In these podcasts, we start each session with a bit of etymology. And if you haven't heard it yet, we've missed you. But here we go. This is the etymology for the word goggle, which we're going to hear a little bit in this podcast. It's the verb form, as a verb form, it was first seen around the 1530s from the Middle English goggolen. I hope that's how you pronounce it. It meant to roll the eyes about. The phrase goggle-eyed was used in Middle English, and it's been suggested it might be related to the word gog, G-O-G, from Celtic languages, meaning a nod or a slight motion, like goggling or goggled. In 1715, we see the noun form goggles for the first time, meaning spectacles or protective eyewear. And then much later in the 1900s, we have the adjective goo-goo, meaning amorous which is perhaps connected with Goggle, because the earliest reference is Goo Goo Eyes. I could not be more excited to welcome Basit Siddiqui to our podcast. He is not only a father of two gorgeous kiddos, he's a husband, teacher of ICT, director of Siddiqui Education, and of course, our favourite Gogglebox voice of reason, Basit Siddiqui, welcome to the podcast. Really excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction as well. Basit, you are a teacher. Yes. Which could be why we all love you so much on Gogglebox, frankly. Why, what made you choose teaching? Why was that profession that you thought was calling for you? Really good question, actually. So I've, I've, I should say I'm not a teacher now. I'm involved in education and I think I'll be in education pretty much for the rest of my life because it is something that I'm massively, massively passionate about. But it wasn't something that when I was at university, it wasn't, it wasn't the plan. It wasn't the intention to go into teaching. I did a degree mm. in business and information systems. And if I'm perfectly honest with you, I didn't have a clue what I was going to do next. Around the time, so what we're thinking, it was kind of like the 90s, 2000s. IT was the buzzword. So working with computers mm. was the way forward. Didn't have a clue what I was going to do. And I ended up working as a data analyst, looking at graphs and spreadsheets and things like that. And I wasn't really enjoying it, if I'm perfectly honest with you. Um, but during that time, two students came in for work experience. And I was asked to sort of chaperone them, show them the ropes of what I do. And I honestly absolutely enjoyed those two weeks where I was just building a rapport with these uh, with these students, these young adults, showing them the ropes. And that's where I got the teaching book. Oh. A friend of mine was doing a PGC at the time. So I kind of had an idea of what was going on. And those two weeks with those two students really piqued my interest. And not soon after that, I I did my PGC or signed up to do my PGC at Nottingham Trent and never looked back, really. It's something that I'll always be involved in. I'm so passionate about education at every level, in every form. It's just that mm. I've, I've mentioned it before in my own personal journey in terms of that aha moment when you see that penny yeah. drop and you see yeah. students just get it when you've had a conversation with them and you've taught them. Yeah. It's such a fantastic thing to be a part of. Absolutely. That light bulb moment. You see it in their eyes, don't you? You really do. Yeah. Yeah. So were those like year 10 students in on work experience? Yeah. Two two year 10 students. And obviously it was all in IT and and data analysis. And it was more than just having a sit down with them, showing them what I do. And then getting mm-hmm. complimented for doing it in the way that I was doing it as well. Yeah. I just remember it being very enjoyable and thinking that, hang on, I, I, I really enjoyed this side of it. And then started to look a little bit further. An interesting way to look at work experience, isn't it, actually? That actually that's 
there's such benefit for the people who are receiving our kids and work experience. Let's hope one day we'll go back to that lovely idea of work experience. I'm thinking that your professional journey that you envisaged has not quite gone as you had imagined. Because presumably, you know, we start teaching, we think, well, I'm going to be head of department in my fourth year. And then I might think about being a VP or I might think about, you know, going into pastoral. Presumably that journey of yours no, absolutely you not. And I'm working on a little project at the moment and it, it, you've articulated it really well, to be honest. Behind every single teacher is a human being and you'll, and, and humans, as, mm. as we all know, they, they'll think one thing from one day to the next. And I remember many years ago, that was exactly mm. the goal. It was like, okay, I'm going to become head of department. I'm going to move on to assistant head, deputy head. I kind of had it mapped out. The thing that changed for me was Mm. when we had my first uh, child. And I remember pretty much, I remember driving home with my wife one day, we'd been out and I said, look, just to let you know, I'm a head of department now in terms of career progression at the moment in my life, this is as far as I kind of want to go at the moment because I was loving the whole dad side of things and making sure yeah. that I was around for all of those bits. Yeah. And, and, and obviously each, each head teacher, each assistant head is different, but obviously there's so much pressure with regards to the work that they do and it can become all consuming. And I'm sure other people are better at managing that and each school is different. But for me, from the experiences I saw, I thought, no, this is as far as I want to go in terms of that. Mm. And I'm a genuine believer in two things. First of all, the skill sets that teachers have are amazing. I wouldn't have been able to do what I've been able to do in the last couple of years in terms of running a business if it wasn't for the experiences that I had through teaching. And I'm such a firm believer in that. And every single Mm. teacher I talked to, I said, please never sell yourself short. The skill sets that you bring to real life situations are so, so powerful. That's such an important message right you now. You see what's it? happening in the media and just whether or not it's, mm. it's parents saying it, whether or not it's the news saying it. And I really, my heart goes out to the education community because I know how passionate they are about it. But at the same time, there is absolutely mm. nothing wrong with your path being completely linear or non-linear as well. It's, it's whatever you feel you want to move on to next. And this world, in terms of the digital world, in terms of the education world, there's so many amazing things out there that teachers could explore as well to help advance their skill set. So mm. it, it's been such a fun journey for me, not only working in a classroom, building a rapport with students, but also looking at the world of education and, and the different people that are out there doing lots of different things. For example, yourself and and your journey as well. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's I think the the skill set we have as as teachers, as you've rightly said, we can't underestimate because actually if you can deal with five kids at the door, you know, you've set supply work for a teacher who's not coping next door. Uh, you've got 17 phone calls to make at the end of the day because there's been issues throughout the day. If you can cope with that juggle, your, your, your skill set is just just incredible. There's a talk I gave a while ago, and it was basically me listing all of the different transferable skills that teachers bring to the table. And one of them was the art of selling. And I said mm-hmm. that how many people on a Friday last period can 
sing their heart out and sell their subject to a group of students who are just thinking about the weekend and keep them engaged for that hour. That's such a true skill to have. I, I used to teach binary and coding last period on a Friday <laughs> to a group of year eight. Wow. Yeah, exactly. So, and I think we're born natural salesmen and women as well, because mm. we we're, it's the art of telling stories, isn't it really? And I know you're an advocate for that. And it's taking something that is on paper, doesn't look too exciting, but then it's turning that into a story and getting students engaged. And yeah. it is an art form. And sharing really something is. of yourself. But you're, you're right, though. I think the first moment your timetable comes out, Friday five is what you go to first, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> what, what have I got? What have I got Friday five? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you've been in Gogglebot since the start, haven't you? Series 17, yeah. I believe now. So, Gosh, <laughs> it really it's gone has, in a yeah. blink, that, hasn't it? <laughs> We're big fans in this house. And I wondered why you felt it's been so successful. I wonder if it's something to do with, for, for us as a family, we love the kind of shared experience of going, yeah, I thought that. I think you've hit the nail on the head, to be honest. I think there's someone there for everyone in terms of the families that people can relate to. And when I say people, I mean every single person out there. The, the conversations that my dad and my brother have had mm. with anyone and everyone who would listen to us and, and, and kind of say that, look, we watch Gogglebox, he'll stop us on the street and say that we're massive fans. And it doesn't seem to be a particular cohort of people. You'll, you'll get a huge variety of people. We once got stopped by an MP when we were in London for something. And the MP only spoke to us for a couple of seconds. I don't remember his name, but he said, for us, it's a fantastic focus group to see what the mood of the nation is as well. And I'd never thought of it in that way. Yeah. So I think people watch it for different reasons. I think there is that family element to it as well, in the sense that when I was young, you always used to sit down with your family at that point. Obviously, with with everything, with every app yeah. that's out there now, with every device, that isn't the case as much nowadays. But one thing that I really like is that I will still, used to be quite a lot of parents' evenings where parents would say to me that Gogglebox is still the show that we sit down and watch as a family. And I thought, First of all, part of me thinks, well, there's a lot of swearing in it, so should you really be doing that? But at the same time, it's, it's, it's such a nice, <laughs> there's such a nice element of that where it's still this, this time for everyone to sit down and see what's kind of happened in the world and what's on TV at the moment. So very, very yeah. lucky with regards to that. Yeah. Because back in the day, we were all watching the same thing, weren't we? And then, you know, in the playground the next morning, you talk about whatever it was you'd watch, whereas now... That's that's gone to a larger extent, but I yeah maybe that's the that's the capturing of those conversations. Absolutely, yeah, and I think a, a lot of people will watch it for that reason as well. They said that I would ne not have necessarily have watched this drama or this documentary, but I saw it or I saw a snippet of it on Gogglebox, and it made me interested in it as well. So, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, that's great, isn't that kind of cross pollination of TV viewing? Yeah. So we're lucky to have you really, aren't we? As, you know, as educators, we're really delighted that we've got that we've got Bassett on that sofa every Friday. That's, that's we're very lucky that you're there. Our voice of reason. <laughs> try. So you're a dad. Yes. You're a dad in lockdown. <laughs> You've got little ones at home, busy homeschooling. How's that going for you? So we've got a six-year-old who had been who is in year two now. She's uh, done the majority of the first term, well, the full first term in year two. And we've got a one-year-old as well. So it has been a balancing act to try and ensure that my daughter is getting the education that she needs whilst ensuring that mm. I'm still juggling 
the work of the business and we've got the little one year old as well and it's been uh, it's been quite a juggling act if i'm honest with you um throughout the whole of lockdown now which seems like a lifetime yeah do you think this do you think this second lockdown is different to the first one in terms of education or just the, in general Mm. For, for you, for your experience with with homeschooling, really? I think with regards to homeschooling, definitely. I think that with the first lockdown, everyone was equally as lost and unsure and worried about what was happening. I mm. mean, this brand new coronavirus was out there. I think our priorities were definitely more about Amelia's well-being to ensure because everything went at that moment. She couldn't see any family, and she's got mm. such a close relationship with a lot of her family, and lost seeing her friends on a day-to-day basis. And my wife and I were talking about this at the age that she's at, the whole Zooming, having a conversation with your friends mm. on Zoom, really difficult at that age because they're not at that position to be able to communicate on, yeah. on that level. Yeah. So, and, and we're literally yeah. saying if she was 13 years old or a little bit older, she'd either be texting, Zooming, or be able to have an articulate conversation with her friends. Emotionally, mm. she wasn't there at that time. Yeah, at her age, it's the, the talk's triggered by play, really. Isn't exactly. It? Yeah, one hundred percent. It's uh, and and you saw that when you when you went in to kind of see her at the end of the school day, they they had this time in year one and in reception as well, where the way that she would make friends or communicate was she'd move over to a certain area of the classroom to go and particularly mm. play with a particular item, and I always thought that was really cute. They weren't talking. The way that they were sort of communicating and making friends was through the sharing of toys or equipment or things like that. So you're absolutely right. When yeah. it comes to the communication side of it, she she struggled with that. And ultimately, our main focus in first lockdown was definitely her well-being to ensure that she was okay mm-hmm. in herself. Uh, second lockdown has definitely been more of a focus on what the work the, the school was setting. Uh, obviously, I was very fortunate yeah. in the sense that in the first lockdown, I was able to make sure that she was doing certain work, but it was kind of almost done by me to ensure that we were doing a bit of maths, a bit of English, doing elements of what the school had sent, but it wasn't as stringent as what yeah. we're being now. We're, we're pretty much following it to the letter in terms of what the school sent now. Yeah, I think that's I think that's mirrored in many homes. That's certainly the case with us and many of my friends and colleagues are saying the same, that actually schools now because you know we've got so much more in place you know we are definitely following the timetable of the day much more stringently it's almost just become a little bit more second nature and getting into the habit of the time when we will Mm. actually start the schoolwork and it's all about the timing the habits the the kind of trying to be as consistent as possible with it I remember when the thought of a second and a third lockdown were looming and I was having a conversation with my wife and naturally we were both a little bit worried about it. But I said that it is going to be different this time. There'll be systems in place. People are kind of experienced with this, not only us as parents, but schools. Schools will be able Mm. to relay information. They're they're better equipped to do that. And that's definitely Mm. been the case with the school that Amelia's at. It's been like just a lot more logistically a lot of the things they've sent through have worked quite well as well so we're chuffed with that I think there's a lot that we can keep I think there are some wins that we've had in education but yeah I can't wait for our kids to be able to be back in school together yeah and actually you know (laughs) together I know that in these times of lockdown there's been a lot of uh research coming out from EEF and 
Literacy Trust talking about vocabulary gaps in particular widening during COVID. And the latest OUP work at report talks about that and has some recommendations of what we can do. Do you think for your experiences with your family, is there anything you've done to sort of mitigate against those gaps that we're all beginning to worry about? It's always really interesting for me because I look at it through the eyes of a parent, but also an educator. So I've always been a a huge advocate for the importance of literacy and ensuring that it isn't just the role of the English teacher to ensure that literacy and key words in any subject are are placed and available for students to really understand. Because without those key words and that key understanding, the work that they're doing just won't make sense. And it's not just necessarily just saying, Mm. oh, well, this keyword means this. Um, for example, just downstairs, literally today, we were talking about uh, habitats and animals and dependency. And there's a lot of words there that if you don't, if you're not aware of them on a regular basis, none of what you're doing makes sense. So it's it's so important to ensure that those keywords are highlighted. Students are not only aware of them, but are continuously they become second nature and a part of the language that that child's using as well. The school and the resources that they send through in terms of keywords, they ensure that they're bold and stand out, which I think is really important because, and and not necessarily just for the child, but for the parent. So I always think about the fact that as a teacher, I'm looking out for those keywords, but the fact that they're in bold, if you're a non-teacher, if you're you're just a parent teaching for the first time, having any additional support and tools in your arsenal is just so important. So something as simple as ensuring you've got a word bank, you've um, got those keywords in bold and maybe a little glossary, it's so, so important to highlight those because it, it will... Yeah. It'll just be built upon on each le- on each lesson. And we've seen that through the, the work that Amelia's gotten. It's kind of like if you have missed a certain aspect from the start, it's always a bit of a challenge to keep reminding them what those words are and, and what the focus is with regards to mm. that. It's just another thing that is going to add to the stresses of homeschooling. I think that's a really important point, isn't it, about the sort of word maps and sharing that with families is really helpful because it allows families to see, okay, well, this, you know, the keyword habitat, that's what we're learning. But unless you have the spider's web of other words around it, that's that's meaningless. You need you need it's that schema idea, isn't it, of how we're linking semantically the, the words in our heads and and putting stories behind them. As well, so that you know, if you've got, you know, it's a habitat. Instantly, you've got images appearing. Yeah, I think the more we do to to link words and image and that spider's web of knowledge, the yeah. better. And sharing that with families is great. I, great I idea. really think so. So I, when I reflect back on, obviously, when I was full time teaching, there was always that glossary of keywords in the in the homework planner. It's just taking that stage further, mm-hmm. isn't it, and put bringing that to the forefront. And uh, as I said, if parents are equipped with that. If whoever's looking after the children, parents, guardians are equipped with that, that additional support, I think that that can only be a good thing. I think uh, your point on making it visual, add, adding some mm. context around it in as many different ways as you can do is really, really important as well. Some of the exercises yeah. that Amelia has been set as well, it breaks the day up really nicely as well. So going back to the habitat example, drawing a, a a rainforest mm. or a, or who are the animals that live in the the rainforest so it's all those keywords around 
that topic, but she's able to visualize it. And then you notice the next day when she does that picture sort and then changes that to a word sort, she's just getting it a lot quicker as well. And it's it's been so nice for me to see that as well and that scaffolding and she's it, the work is slowly but surely being embedded in there as well, which is great. Yeah. And nice that you can then have the chats about it as a family. And maybe we're having more of those in, you know, in homeschooling days. Maybe we're talking more with our kids about what they're doing at school because they're with Absolutely. us. Absolutely. And I, I think yeah. it's difficult to do that with every aspect of the homeschooling. But if you see a spark in her eye over a certain thing, for example, she we've got quite a specific time for when she's going to be working. And that's purely, it works around the, the one-year-old's nap times. And when I'm in, in yeah. and out of meetings. So we kind of make sure that she's working at certain points. And it's a case of kind of looking at what the school send either the, the day before or the week before and knowing which order is the best order to do each of these things in. So when Theodore's going to be messing around and playing, can she get on with this yeah. aspect of it by herself? So whether that's a word search, whether that's drawing the habitat, there was a nice math sorting exercise that she's been given. So the difference between odds and evens, but instead of using a worksheet mm. and doing it through a worksheet, use toys, use things throughout the house. So both of them were getting involved in that. Yeah. So Theodore kept getting really upset that Amelia was taking his cars because she was trying to make her <laughs> evens and odds uh, pile. So it's been fun just to see that. And that's difficult to explain Absolutely. to a one-year-old. Yeah, he's so funny at the moment with his, toy, with his toys, though. He had this, uh, over Christmas, Santa got him this frog. And he loved this frog. And basically, when you press a button, the frog's mouth starts vibrating. Not a real frog, no, no, I'm no, guessing. Sorry, I should, I should explain. Yes, no, toy, yeah, toy a giant frog. toy frog with, with a mouth that you can put, like, things into. You're supposed to put balls into it that they give you, and then he has to chase the balls and put them back in. But he was putting everything in it. And... He eventually put his beaker in it, soaked the frog, which you think a frog would be fine with that, getting a bit wet. But uh, That's a big frog mouth, uh, though. It's huge. It's huge. But uh, <laughs> this frog uh, doesn't work anymore, but it's given him a chance to explore oh. other toys and how to break other toys as well. So it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that everything that you lost in the household, you would eventually find in the frog's it mouth. Be, it, Car it did keys, reach a point. Yeah, wallet. absolutely. Yeah, that became our first place that we'd check in case anything got lost. But yeah, sadly, it's not with us now. So he's targeting this musical drum at the moment that um, the battery's running out. So he's getting angry at that. He's, he's all rage, honestly. You say musical? Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's, well, musical. it is. You, you, you can bang the drum, <laughs> but this drum is a little bit strange. To actually get any notes out of it or anything, it has this thing that you spin. So you spin the drum and it, it plays music. And I'm like, this is going to confuse this child. Well, yeah. yeah, at the same time, but at the same time, a drum is a drum. You should either bang it and that's it as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it shouldn't have any hidden features which can add additional music to it. He's going to be very disappointed if he wants to learn to play the drums <laughs> later in life <laughs> and find that it's not Just, the full exactly, orchestra. Exactly, spinning the drum. It's like, what's going on? Why isn't it making music? Bless him. Well, my, my kids are a bit older, but the best we've had so far is my, my year seven Son trying to get the cat on the screen because there was a lesson oh, about brilliant. pets. And we've got very stroppy cats. <laughs> that, that didn't go well. Didn't no one go was well. injured though, were they? Were they all okay though? No one was injured in the cat lesson. No, we're, we've survived it. <laughs> I know that what a lot of your work now is is focused on the our disadvantaged groups. Yeah. And 
doing a little bit of background reading, I did come across your Let's Pitch It idea, which, you know, from an RSE and talk perspective sounds fabulous. Can you tell us a bit about the work you're doing Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for that. Um, So Let's Pitch It, the scheme of work, is roughly around three lessons. And it's all about research, planning, and then using communication to, to pitch an idea for a television show. Part of a national competition, but behind it, as exciting as that all sounds, working in groups to see what kind of television concept ideas are out there at the moment and then create one for yourself. I was really keen to ensure that behind all of that were so many different transferable skills that were being developed. For example, your research skills, communication as a group, so teamwork, collaboration, the digital literacy side of it, and then the presentation aspect of it as well. It evolved over time as well. And one of the things that I really ensured that I did to, to ensure that we were building aspirations was the the art of sort of selling yourself and using language within your presentation or whether you're vocalizing it, whether you're using oracy for it to sell the product that you're doing. Don't just say, oh, this is what we've made. This is why we think is good. If you don't believe in that product, then why is anyone else going to believe in it? And that was something that as I saw evolve over time, working in so many different schools and just adding little nuance to the way that I was delivering it. That was so fun to see because it the, the focus of the sessions started to be more about aspirational intervention. So celebrating yourself through your words, through oracy, through your ideas, whether or not you're using digital literacy to make a trailer. And it was so much fun to see by the end of that session. There was one bit where I did at the start of the session, I said, hand up if you're happy with your idea everyone would put their hands up. They'd all had great ideas for a TV show concept. And then I'd say, okay, keep your hands up if you've got a winning idea. And then quite a lot of hands would go down. And then I'd, I'd have to convince them and, and make sure that they were able to articulate to me and their teacher why their idea was a winning idea. Mm. So it was so much fun for me to see that shift into something slightly different. And it wasn't by design. It was kind of me just observing, reflecting on what I was doing as a teacher and thinking, okay, what if we had this bit? In? What if we just shift our language here? at this point that really pulls on the that huge link between self-esteem and language doesn't it you know if we have the words what does Shay Matini say if you've got the words there's always a chance you'll find the way that self-esteem link and well-being behind our our vocabulary range is is just so important and I think it's not until you're older where you really really value that and experience that so obviously through through everything that I do, you have to be a good networker. You have to be a good communicator. And it's, it's about mm. having confidence in yourself and, and knowing that you're able to articulate yourself to the level that you want to as well. And I think students, the, the more experience they have of that, and it, that's through reading books, through literacy exercises, through oracy exercises, it's so, so important. And it's fun as well. Exactly. Exactly. That sounds like such a fun activity, pitching a TV show. I've got a little view of The Apprentice there when you were saying that, you know, when they have to go up and pitch and they all squabble about who's going to do it and did you do it well well enough? There's (laughs) so many little life lessons that come from it. And as you can imagine, we get some weird and wonderful ideas. Isn't it great when you get that real innate imagination, inventiveness of kids coming through? And they, they never cease to astound no, you. They, they really don't. And the additional beauty to that is that when you see them actually working together and the transferable skills they're building through that, because they're so lost in the idea of creating this 
competition winning idea. And don't get me wrong, the competition element of it could put certain students off. I completely understand that. I think teachers and, and anyone who works in education believe that the idea of competition, everyone's going to love that. At the same time, that could really put some kids off. So you have to make sure that you've mm. got enough there to ensure that they're getting something out of that session as well. But the idea of creating some totally new, something imaginative, seems to be enough of a reason for certain students to continue going with it. It's broken up into planning, researching, and then creating. And I remember there was one student who was really quiet throughout the day, and I kept going over and saying, are you okay? Are you happy working in your group? And he kept nodding his head and saying, yep, yeah, it's fine. I'm, I'm happy with all of this. But I could, I could just tell he wasn't getting involved as much as I wanted him to. In the afternoon, they had to go onto the actual development of the trailer. And it was a new bit of kit that they were using, this new um, video kit that they were using. And this, this child was quite confident using it or became quite confident using it. And it was so nice to see that the focus then, he completely changed in terms of his character. He was the leader in that situation now. And because of that, he got so much more involved, so much more engaged. So it's nice to have these project-based activities where you see everyone's strengths play a part in it as well. Fantastic. And giving them that vehicle to, to show what they can do. Bass, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming along. I think as a profession, we are all entirely delighted to have you on our Gogglebox show for every Friday and to hear the work you're doing with our disadvantaged students and banging, banging the drum for, for education. It's just brilliant. That's Thank very you. Kind of you know. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure joining you today. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Word Up podcast from Oxford Education. To receive bonus material relevant to the discussion, please visit www.oup.com slash education slash podcasts.